of the retreat, trying to explain a little why do we do certain things and what is the idea behind it and how that can help us in the practice on the Buddhist path. And my throat is not too good, so we'll see how long I can last. So, uh, to start with the context, I think I want to look a little at, in a way, why we are sitting uh, in this way here. Because you might, especially at the end of the fourth sitting in the afternoon, you might have felt a, f- a few pains and aches and wondering, why are we doing this? You know, what's the point? And actually, I, why we are sitting at all? Uh, in Buddhist meditation, there is actually a wonderful uh, story, and for me I find it wonderful about the Buddha. So the Zen tradition very much comes from the Buddhist tradition. And so the Buddha, like ourselves, was practicing 2,500 years ago. And 2,500 years ago he was in a way faced with the same things that we are faced with. That he encountered, he was born, then he encountered uh, death, he encountered old age, he encountered sickness, he encountered suffering. And he thought, where does suffering arise? Why is it so? What is the cause of suffering? How does it work? What is going on in this life? How come we born? How come we age? We become sick, we die. And so in a way, he started his quest with all these questions. And then, the, what was going on at that time, when you were ever wanting to be a wandering mendicant and you wanted to practice, that there was a lot of ascetic practices. A lot of practices which were very much about going beyond the body, to some kind of special space somewhere. And the Buddha did these practices from, for a few years, for six years. And so he could do them very well and he could achieve a kind of very kind of amazing state of mind, very detached from the body, very detached from the world. But he thought, this is not answering my question of, you know, why are we suffering? Why do we die? What is the root of suffering? What is going on? And then, and that's why we are sitting here, and then he remembered an episode of when he was young, when he was about 10, and he went with his father for a special ceremony to start the harvest, to start, not, I think to start the tilling of the soil and to plant. And so while his father was doing all these things in the field with uh, people, he was sitting, and I love what he, he said, he was sitting under the cool shade of a rose apple tree. I think this is very nice. I don't know what a rose apple tree is, which sounds very cool, very fresh. So he was, you know, about 10, and he was sitting under that tree, very cool. And he said, suddenly, he realized that he was secluded from desire. He was secluded from unwholesome thoughts. And then he entered into meditation, just naturally like that. So after he did all these ascetic practices, he remembered that, ah, when he had that amazing experience of coolness, of openness, of spaciousness, of understanding, as he was sitting under the the shade of that tree, 
And he thought, ah, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe this is the answer, this is the way to practice, not to mortify the body, not to uh, do all kinds of ascetic practices, but just to sit. And then he decided to sit under what is then became the body tree, the, bo- the tree the, of enlightenment, and he just sat for a week, and then he attained awakening. And so in a way, this is why we are sitting here, in this posture, in this way, because that in a way that's what worked for him. That by practicing in this way, by sitting still, by being aware, by cultivating this meditative awareness, this concentration, this inquiry, then he he saw through the root of suffering, which was craving, which was grasping, and then he was able to let go. And then he taught about that. And then he met many people who were very interested in his teaching and in his methods. So then that kind of in a way went on, so the, the teaching spread. And then from India, it went into China about 600 years later. And so at the beginning in China, it was all the books came in Sanskrit. So the Chinese had to translate everything in the Chinese script. And so this took them quite a few years, and so Buddhism became very scholastic. And then over a few hundred years, then people realized that actually one could get lost in the letters, in the world, in the scholastic enterprise. And so some people wanted to come back to that experience of the Buddha, of sitting under the body tree, the body of uh, the tree of awakening, of enlightenment. And so that was then arose this school, which now is known as a Zen school, because they, they wanted to come back to this meditation exercise, to something that the Buddha did himself. And through doing it himself, he was able to awaken himself. And so that's what they call themselves the meditation school. And so he wanted to go back to that essential experience of the Buddha. And so in a way, while we are sitting here, Again, it's because of that, because of these uh, Chinese people who decided to come back to that primary experience of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. But then, and therefore, and then for some reason, and this, I don't know why. I think this could be cultural, this could be whatever. Among the postures of meditation, the Buddha said there were four postures in which we could meditate. The standing, the lying down, the sitting and the walking. And the Zen school, the meditation school in China, seems to have focused their attention formally on sitting and in walking. So that's what in a way why we do sitting and walking. And then they reserve the lying down and the standing for more informal occasions. But in a way, the sitting and the walking happen in the meditation room. But the informal meditation, the lying down happens when you rest or when you go to bed at night. The standing happens when you stand outside or when you stand in a queue. So in a way, these tools of posture are more practiced, cultivated informally. But then, Possibly they found that the sitting, the walking was 
in a way what they wanted to focus on, what is they wanted to do. So again, that's why we are sitting and we're walking. But then, uh, then Buddhism, the meditation school of Buddhism in China, which was called Chan School, then went into Korea, was called Song, then it went into Japan, and it was called Zen. And that's why in a way now you hear about the Zen school, because in a way the Japanese Zen Buddhism got to be more well-known than the Chinese Chan of the Korean thought. But it all came back, came from the Buddha 2,500 years ago, and then came also from these Chinese ancestors, these masters in the 6th, 7th, 8th century in China. But what is interesting even with that was that the Chinese adapted Buddhism to create this meditation school. But then each time Zen moved to another country, then the people too adapted that the form. So in China it is done in a certain way, in Korea another way, and in Japan a little different way. So what we are doing actually is a Korean style. Because in China, they would sit even longer hours and they would walk even faster. And this is fascinating. I went to, I did a retreat in uh, Taiwan and there was a period of sitting where long because you have, to, you have this long incense. And it's once the incense is totally burnt, then, then you can, you ring the bell and they quite long those incense. And then when you walk, you don't walk for 10 minutes you walk for 20, 30 or 40 minutes according to what the master decides. And what was amazing is that there are two circles. They had one circle which was walking up, and then they had the inner circle which was really running, nearly, you know, around the Buddha. And the master was actually a mistress because she was an old nun. She was in the inner circle, so really fast for 30 minutes. I could not keep up. And to stay in the outer, slower, fast circle. So that's a Chinese time, one Chinese time. Then for whatever reason in Korea, they decided to walk at ordinary pace. And then if you go to Japan, generally some walk fast, some walk other way they were very slow. So you go very slow, very slow. So maybe if you have other experience of them, that's why in a way what we're doing is in a certain style. It's the Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese, they all have their different styles. And we too, as we present this retreat, we also have adapted it from the Korean side. Because both Stephen and myself, we studied in Korea, I was 10 years there, Stephen was 4 years there. And in Korea, the format of the meditation is that we get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you sit for all this period till 10 o'clock at night. And the periods there are 50 minutes, 5-0 of sitting, and then 10 minutes of walking as we do. But the first time we tried this, we Westerners, they could not walk. So we cannot decide it to kind of, uh, although you, you might think it's hard, we, start, we decided to adapt it so that it would be a little easier for people who are Westerners, not used to sit long hours, also for people who did it just for a week. So that's why we kind of did the setup the way it is. Because in Korea, you do this three, getting at 3 o'clock and throughout the day 10 to 11 or 12 hours. You do this for three months. And you do this twice a year. So you would sit 
this, uh, do this meditation retreat for six months of the year. And it's wonderful. I mean, to be, to be able to do that is wonderful. But what is interesting with doing it for three months, because you might think, wow, a week, Ooh, this is a long time. And I said, three months, you think, how could she do it? But it was very easy. But what was interesting was that the mind would adapt to the length. So in Korea, the first two weeks was really difficult. Because you, you kind of, you, and the mind, the body had to kind of reset itself to that rhythm of sitting to about 10, 11 hours a day. You know, we always got up at three anyway, so that was nothing kind of too, dra- too, too dramatic or difficult. And for two weeks, the body has to get used to it. And then for two months, it was very easy. You just did it. That's what you did. That was the reason. But on a week retreat, I think what happened is a little similar. It's actually the first two days are a little difficult. Because, you know, you're not used to the rhythm. The body has to get used to the posture. The mind has to get used to the rhythm, to the exercise, to the practice. And then, generally, people find it easier. So, if you are found this first day a little difficult, hopefully it will get easier. Or I hope so. <coughs> and one thing that we wanted to, to keep as we adapted this uh, retreat for a Western lay style actually was to keep this short ceremony. Because you could have thought, oh well, you know, why do we have to do this ceremony? I mean, it's three puny bows, you know. When, I mean, some people sometimes they want long ceremonies, or they want nothing at all. And then we have these three little bows, which to some might be very little, to some might be too much. And to me, again, it's to give you a little of the feel of what would be a traditional setting. Because in Korea, you don't have so much chanting. You are some. But in the meditation hall, you don't have any chanting. You just have the bowing in the morning and in the evening. And for lunch, you go to the main Buddha hall, and then you do a rice offering ceremony. So actually what we do in the three bar is exactly as you would do it in the meditation hall in Korea. And for me, I think it is a certain reminder. It is actually when we come to the room in the morning, when we do the bowing before we start in the evening, it's a kind of like a symbolic reminder of what we aspire to, about what we are inspired by. So that when we bow toward the Buddha, we actually are not bound to anything outside ourselves. We're actually reminding ourselves that we too can be a Buddha. We too have this Buddha nature. So as we, you know, we pay our respect, we are paying our respect to our own Buddha nature, to the Buddha which is within us in this moment. But which in a way is slightly clouded, obstructed. We can't always access it. At the time we have experience of kind of openness, of spaciousness, of clarity. And in a way what we are bowing to, what we, when we bow we are in a way trying to come back to that Buddha-ness, to that Buddhahood, to that Buddha-nature which all of us have. And then also, what we offer, as uh, Stephen was pointing out, we offer light, we light the candle, we bring some water, and then we light the incense. But even there, too, in all these three things, there is a teaching. 
And it's interesting how each tradition looks at this a little differently. In the Zen tradition, the way it's seen is that we offer the candle, we light the candle as a reminder to what we aspire to, which is clarity, which is awakening, which is light. Because how does it feel when you're confused? When you're confused and you're agitated and you're full of fear or full of um, anxiety, things feel very crowded, very dark, and you don't see very clearly. But when you feel really well and your mind is really clear, then there is, it's, it's kind of like there is a light and everything's falling into place. You don't confuse things. Things are very clear because there is space around it, but also because there is light to see things within that space, the space and the things themselves. So in a way the light represents that, the light of the candle represents the, the, the clarity, the lightness we can bring to our own body-mind complex, we can actually bring to the world. But also there is something else in the candle burning. What happens when the candle burns? As the candle burns, as the candle dissipates, consumes itself, melts, then light is produced. And this is actually a representation, uh, symbolically, of selflessness. That in a way, part of this path of meditation is about cultivating a selflessness, a kind of a stopping to be so rigidly, so solidly, so fixedly fixed on ourselves, on our own well-being, on our own, in a way, tendency, habit all the time. But in a way, breaking out of that and still being there, but in a very, very different way, much lighter, much more spacious. So in a way, the consuming of the candles within the light is a symbol, representation of what we aspire to, what sometimes we can experience is selflessness. And then there is the incense. And the incense again is very interesting because the incense is burning and then it radiates this fragrance. But as it radiates the fragrance, it doesn't say, oh well, I only send the nice fragrance to this person because they're really good meditator, you know, and they're really kind of, you know, right on the path. And over there, oh, the terrible people, I am not going to send it to them. There is no choice, it's choiceless. When there is a fragrance, it pervades this whole room, regardless of our quality or anything. It is very spacious, very wide open. And again, this is what we aspire to, that fragrance that in a way our whole being, our own Buddha nature can spread itself everywhere, that we can encounter everything without grasping, without attachment. In the same way that incense does not speak anywhere, but just pervades everywhere, everything. And at the same time, the incense too represents selflessness, because it, it sends this perfume, this, per, this fragrance, as it consumes itself. So again, a representation symbolically of selflessness, of trying to be in relationship in a different way that we are still very present, but we are present in a way, again, which is not sticking, which is not fixing. And then there is the water. We 
pour the water into these bowls. And the water again has many different meanings. The water is the water of life. So in a way, recognizing our life in this moment is dependent, conditioned by this element of water, by the fact that we can only live because of water and blood in our body. We can only live because we can drink water. So in a way, appreciating the fact that we're alive, that we are dependent on water for life. And then another aspect of the water is a reflection, that it reflects. So that you have the water, I mean, here it's a little, I could not find a bigger bowl, which would be uh, appropriate. So here you're reflecting a very tiny, but still, there is reflection. And actually, anything that reflects in the surface of the water will just be reflected as it is. Again, the water is not going to say, oh, this person is very pretty, come, come, reflect on my surface. Oh, this person is ugly, oh, I don't want it. The water is just there, and just reflect as it is, whatever comes to it, above the surface of the water. So again, a symbol of non-grasping, but at the same time showing how deeply it reflects exactly what is there, so that the practice is not for us to disappear, but very much to be totally embodied in who we are in this moment but in this wide, non-grasping, non-attached way. And also with the water, there is this element of adapting to whatever container you put it in. I put it in a small bowl, it takes the shape of that small bowl. You put it in a kind of oblong, in a square, it will take that shape. So again, it's kind of in a way trying to show us the fluidity, the adaptability, which often we don't have. Often we feel very stark, very solid, very fixed. But in reflecting, noticing that aspect of the water, remembering that we too can be like the water, being adaptable, flowing in that way. And then I would just like to look a little at, in a way, what we will be talking more about uh, during the retreat. Of course, we'll be talking about Buddhism, about Zen Buddhism. And at, this, and at one level, you, all of you might have read many books, might have, uh, you have all practiced before, you have all read her teaching. And you might know that at one level, but Buddha's teaching can be enormously complicated. You can have this huge list, this huge book, and if you were to read everything, it would take various lifetimes. And at the same time, what I'd like to point out is that the teaching can be so simple, so simple that any of us in this moment, we can understand it, we can practice it, we can apply it. And so I'd like to tell a little story about that the simplicity of the teaching and what we can do and practice during this week. And this is the story about well, a master in China, a Zen master there, who was called the bird nest master. And why was he called the bird nest master? It was because he lived in a tree. And he was kind of, you have this uh, uh, painting of uh, that story, is you have kind of like a kind of a huge bird nest and the master. He's sitting on that tree. So that's where he lives, that's where he meditates. 
on top, you know, of the branches of the tree. And so that's why he's known as a bird nest master. That's, you know, that's uh, what he does. And so one day, as the story goes, he's very eminent pastor, this uh, kind of uh, head of the province, uh, comes to meet him. And the first thing he says to the master, who is in his tree up there, is, oh, master, isn't it dangerous to live up there, you know, to live in, uh, in this tree in that way? And the master said, well, I mean, it's slightly dangerous, but it's far more dangerous where you are living. And the fellow said, oh, but I am the commander of this whole province. Why should it be then more dangerous than you? But actually what the master meant was that he is there in that tree. And through being there, he knows the danger of life. He knows that life is impermanent. He knows that he could fall at any moment, if he, especially if he falls asleep on his cushion up there. But you know, in that, knowing the precariousness of life is what makes him actually aware, more aware of life and more aware of the danger so that he can be with the danger. He can befriend with the danger. He's not afraid by it. He's not deluded. He's not blinded by it. When we the commander, thinking he's very safe, being this big person, having all these soldiers around him, at any moment he could die, but he does not realize it. At any moment he could be deluded by desires, by fear, but he does not realize it. So anyway, the, the commander is not so very satisfied with his answer. So he decides to go on another task. Because then I mean, he's come from far away to get something from the master, so he wants you know, some good information. I mean, at least some proper teaching. So then the commander said to the master, what is Buddha's teaching? Say something about it. And so the master said, well, the Buddha's teaching goes that way. The way of the Buddha, he said the Buddha's teaching is to do good, to restrain from doing bad things, and to purify the heart. And then the commander laughed. He said, wow, come on, a three-year-old could say that. And then the master, yes. We answered, yes, a three-year-old could say it, but maybe a five-year-old could not do it. So in a way, the, the teaching of the Buddha can be as simple as that, to do good, to restrain from evil, to purify the heart. But actually, it is so simple. But if we look into it, actually there is much more to it than that. And actually that's why it's so hard for any of us right now to practice it, or, or uh, 85 years old. Because to do good, what does it mean? It means actually, it's not just mean about being good being good to animals, being good to children, or whatever. It means to look into what is positive within ourselves, what is positive outside of ourselves, and how can that help us to be happier, to be more at peace, to be more spacious. How can we cultivate that consciously, and cultivate it in such a way that then it becomes natural, that naturally we let our own goodness come out and pervade the whole universe. In the same way we're not doing evil, not uh, restraining from negative things. And in a way this retreat is an opportunity to do that. But it's more complicated than just not being bad. It's kind of looking into what are the conditions for negativity to arise, 
which are the conditions for suffering to arise. How can I be with this? How can I be with this differently? How can they not impel me to think, speak, or act in certain ways? So very much is trying to come to terms, to explore, to inquire into what is negative. In the same way as the other one is to come to engage deeply with what is positive, what is good within ourselves. And to purify the heart. I think this is also what we are doing here. It doesn't mean, I think often when we think of purifying the heart, we think that we have to take out the impurity. But I don't think that's what it is. To purify the heart is again to look at the conditions that are an obstacle to my Buddha nature shining forth. So in a way to purify the heart is actually to purify it from grasping. To understand the mechanism of grasping, which is what makes us tight, makes us anxious, makes us suffering, also often makes us cause suffering to others. So in that way, in a way, in those few sentences you have, in a way, the teaching of the Buddha. It's very simple, but it's also something we can practice here or outside, and we, in a way, practice for our whole life, because we start to understand it in very different ways, in much more profound ways. And then, another um, thing I would like to talk about is to show a little what is this Zen way about, what is this Zen practicing, what, why are we doing what we're doing. Again, we, today we uh, looked at the breath, we were just trying to be aware of the breath, to be aware, to be present here. And tomorrow we start to uh, introduce the question, what is this? And again, kind of practicing, speaking here, what is this for? What do we do it for? Because I'm sure all of you have certain motivation, you have all your reasons to be here, and also certain aspirations. Oh, maybe I will get this, maybe I will get that. So I will tell you what Master Dogen, a Japanese and master, what he thought in a way we're doing here, and maybe you see, is it what you thought, or is it different? And so Master Dogen is, uh, wrote this uh, short poem, which to me exemplifies very much what we're doing and what happens when we do meditation. So he says, the way of the Buddha is to know ourselves. To know ourselves is to forget ourselves. To forget ourselves is to be enlightened by all things. So in a way, that's what we're doing. So the way of the Buddha is to know ourselves. And I think that's what is very much we have to be careful when we do meditation of not thinking, that you're sitting here in order to be blank. Because there is this idea that in meditation you must not think, you, m you must kind of become blank, there must be no, no thought, nothing. And that is not so. That really is a misunderstanding. But actually, through the meditation, we actually know ourselves more fully, but in totality. So that actually, through the concentration, through the inquiry, we develop this meditative awareness, which then makes us discover really who we are, what we are. And we realize that actually we are much more complex than we think we are. That there is many more things to ourselves, 
many more qualities, many more skills, many more negative tendency, habits, emotional, mental, physical habits. And so the meditation is not a mean to judge ourselves, is not a mean to force ourselves to be that way or another. Actually, it is a mean to see ourselves fully, to accept the whole of we are in a very spacious and light manner. So we say in that way, when the, the way of the Buddha is to know ourselves, I would say in a way, is to become friends with the whole of what we are. I think that's what Dogen is saying. As we meditate, as we practice the way of the Buddha, we became more, more apparent to us who we are. We appreciate ourselves more. We understand ourselves more. So anyway, that's part of the practice of what we're doing here during this retreat. But then there is the next sentence, which is that to know ourselves is to forget ourselves, which brings us little to this word which is often used in then, tradition, emptiness. But in a way, the more we get to know ourselves, actually the more we become transparent. Again, it doesn't mean that we disappear. It's not that suddenly, you know, at the end of the retreat, there is nobody left on the cushion. You kind of all disappear in smoke. Not at all. But by getting to know ourselves more fully, actually we forget this rigid, fixed, unmovable, unchangeable, constricted sense of self. This start to disappear because we start to realize we have much more complex, much more multi-perspectival than we thought we were. So we don't, I think, through the practice, we cannot reduce ourselves anymore to any one part of ourselves. Because I think this is what causes the most suffering, is the fact that we reduce ourselves to a feeling, to an emotion, to a thought, to a physical, sensation, or whatever it might be. We reduce ourselves to that. And so to know ourselves is to forget ourselves, is to realize we're actually much more than we think we are. We are are much more transparent, much more spacious. There is much more freedom. There is much more movement. In a way, we become like water. The water is very there. You can feel it. But actually, you can't grasp water. The only way you can grasp water is by freezing it. But at this natural state, water, you can touch it. But you can't grasp it. And it's the same with us. As we get to know ourselves, we can see ourselves more fully, but we don't grasp anymore. There is this spaciousness, there is this transparency, there is this freedom. And then the last one, which is to forget yourself, to forget ourselves, then is to be enlightened by all things. And I think this is very essential, because it shows us that what we're doing here is not so inner. It's not about finding something inside ourselves. It's actually by becoming more transparent, by becoming more fluid, then actually we become more connected. We cannot start to not feel so separate from the world around us, 
we become more in tune, in touch, relating, we become more relational, I would say. So that, in a way, you say we become enlightened by all things. We start to see everything around us. We start to see the changing nature, the conditioned nature. We can also start to see how dependent we are on everything around us. On the air we breathe, on the food we eat, on the fact that we need to be with people to relate, to relate to ourselves. So then at that level, enlightenment, awakening, doesn't become something very special, very exotic, but actually shows us that anything can be the opening for awakening. Anything can enlighten us to, I mean, to see a blade of grass, to hear somebody talk, the kindness of a stranger, or even the seeing somebody doing something negative can, ah, we understand something. So by becoming more aware, more present, more fluid, actually we are more in touch with everything around us. And then everything that we need, positive or negative, can be um, a source of awakening, of enlightenment. And uh, maybe I'll tell you a little story. Why not? Why not? Because today I have not told many stories, which is generally my uh, kind of uh, what I do. But maybe to finish, just a little personal story, just to about this being enlightened by all things. So this, because I think we we can make spirituality in something very precious, that you know, you read all these stories and hear about all these things, and you think, wow. Oh, this is kind of amazing. And you think, you know, that maybe you're not special enough or you're not in a special place enough or it's not exotic enough. But actually, it is true. You can be enlightened by all things. So, uh, a few years back now, I was a house cleaner because that's the only thing I could do. Uh, when I came back, I was a nun for 10 years. Then I came back to live in England with Stephen as we got married and both stopped being monks and nuns. And the only thing I could do was to be a house cleaner, because I had no uh, diploma, no skills, nothing. And the only thing I could do was to meditate, which in, in the kind of the marketplace to earn money at that time was not so kind of useful. We needed to earn some money to buy our daily bread. We could not just meditate in front of the bakery. So <coughs> I became a house cleaner. And one thing I used to really dread in my job was that moment when I went into the bathroom and I opened the toilet bowl and there would be the big turd in it. <laughs> I would kind of really react and kind of, Ooh, and I would kind of be traumatized for the day. And, you know, kind of like that. And then one day, I, you know, I was uh, doing a retreat but also doing the house cleaning at the same time as we were living in community. And so I go down to the bathroom you know, and I open the toilet bowl and there is this big turn and I look at it and I think, oh, this is matter. It arrives, it stays a while and it goes away. And to me it was, I mean, it seems very minor, but I think it's back to be enlightened by all things. It's very interesting that we go about our life and there is this thing that we really stick to and really get us 
And we feel, yes, I have the right to be upset about this. You know, this is da-da-da-da. It's the force of that thing out there. But in that moment of uh, slight understanding, what I saw is that that thing, that until that moment I had treated as terrible, negative, dreadful, etc., etc., I could not stand, was just matter. It was just force. It just came upon being upon certain conditions, stayed a while, and if I flushed, it passed away. <laughs> Which I did, because that was the wise thing to do. But there was no grasping, there was no excitement, there was no kind of anxiety, it was just as it was. So in a way, to be careful of seeing, you know, to really see that there is this, this movement, but also this process. That the way of the Buddha is to know ourselves more deeply, more widely, in all kinds of ways. And to me, this is what is the joy of the practice. That the more we practice, the more we get to know ourselves. But not in the tight, kind of self-fish way. But again, to know ourselves is to forget ourselves. To know ourselves more deeply is to become, in a way, this more spacious, wide, light being. And then by becoming this more spacious being, then by forgetting ourselves, but then we open ourselves to everything around us, and then everything we meet can be a teaching, can be a moment of awakening. And so I hope that during this retreat, there will be this kind of uh, process, this movement, of knowing yourself, of forgetting yourself, but also of being enlightened by everything around you. Thank you. Are there any questions? If there are no questions, then there will be more walking. So now there is free walking. So from now on, which is quarter to uh, to eight, there will be free walking. So I mean, if you want to walk in the room, you can. If you want to w- walk outside, and then we'll start again at eight fifteen. And so when we come at eight fifteen, we'll do the three bounds as I explained, and then we'll do two period of uh, thirty minutes sitting and ten minutes walking. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.